Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, my guest is Dr. Judith Brisman, and she's here to speak with me today about her book, co-authored with Michelle Siegel and Margot Weinshell, entitled Surviving an Eating Disorder, Strategies for Family and Friends, which is now in its fourth edition. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my guest. Dr. Judith Brisman is a psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in Manhattan, New York. She's former director of the Eating Disorder Resource Center and serves as editor for the journals Contemporary Psychoanalysis, as well as the journal Eating Disorders. She's also faculty at the William Ellenson White Institute. She's internationally known as one of the first in her field to develop a treatment program for patients with bulimia and she has published and lectured extensively regarding the interpersonal treatment of eating disorders. Judith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So do you mind telling us first a little bit about your background and how you got involved in treating eating disorders? I mean, it's it's a pretty crazy story. It has to do with what girls do when they're in their 20s. I was literally sitting by the beach with someone I was doing research with, and she was, a, she was a colleague of mine at Long Island University. And we had just eaten lunch and we were doing girl talk, which is in those days when I was in my 20s, I feel fat. And she felt <laughs> fat. And she said to me, this was, this was in the 1980s. And she said to me, you know, I have had this thing where I eat and then I throw up. And I've, it's been a real problem, but that's how I've kept my weight down. And she proceeded to tell me that she was in recovery from this and that she had actually gone up to deal with a woman named Marlene Boskine White, who was up at Cornell University. And at that time, this was in the 80s, no one really knew. I I was shocked when I had heard about this and I didn't know that this existed, but apparently when Marlene was a school psychologist at Cornell, she was finding more and more girls were binging and throwing up and she decided to run a group for this. And my colleague had heard about this. My, and this is open about my colleague, um, but she's talked about this. But she went up there, did the workshop, and she came back to me. And she, uh, at that time, I was in, in graduate school at Long Island University, and I was doing my internship at St. Vincent's in the alcohol. St. Vincent's used to exist, and the alcoholism division. And she said, look, what she knows about the disorder and what I know about substance abuse 
we should really try to put something together because she thinks that there are other girls who are going through this. And I say girls because in those days, we only thought it was girls. And by word of mouth, we actually found five women in New York who told us that they were doing this. And we started a group. And uh, in those days, it also it dates me and ages me, but there was no computers in those days. And so we put out a press release. Uh, we started to do the group and we put out a press release saying two New York City psychologists running a group for girls who are struggling with binging and throwing up. Uh, we were picked up by a cable TV show in Long Island and the world just sort of exploded with that information. The media thinking, oh, pretty girls who are throwing up. We were called by every media company um, and every TV show. And out of the blue, we suddenly got hundreds of referrals. But in those days, again, it was by letters and uh, no email and phone calls. And so we put we quickly put together a center, which was the first center in the country for the treatment of bulimia. And in those days, it was called Bulimia Treatment Associates. And, you know, we, no one knew what to do. I did try to work with the, my work with addictions. We did some things that worked, some many things that didn't. Ultimately, my partner and I decided we weren't that we needed to separate our partnership. And I brought in another colleague of mine, Michelle Siegel. And Michelle and I ended up getting a suite of offices, hired what turned out to be about 20 people to work with us. And uh, we opened a, a center that was thriving. And what happened was in those days, because everything was by phone, we would, we would be 24-7 getting calls from people saying, you know, my daughter is throwing up, she's binging, should we put the refrigerator in the backyard? Or we got a call from a guy who said he was he had a ring in his finger in his hand to fly to L.A. to get asked to propose to his girlfriend. But she wasn't eating and she and sometimes she was throwing up. Should she tell should he tell her that she had to stop or else he wouldn't marry her? We were getting calls like this every day. And Michelle, I am so grateful to her. She said, you know what? We should write this down because we're saying the same thing day after day. And it was Michelle's idea to write Surviving an Eating Disorder. And we, we asked Margot to join us. She was a family therapist at the Ackerman Institute and she brought in the knowledge at, at that point of family therapy. And in 1988, we produced the first book, uh, um, which really is a guide to telling people what to do day to day if you're concerned about someone who has an eating problem, a weight issue, focus on their body. Um, and the book, has, the book has taken many evolutions. In the beginning, in the 1980s, none of us really knew what to do. We, we were developing a field. It was, it was incredibly exciting. Um, but in those days, pretty much the word of mouth was that you needed to get the parents out of the picture and that the kids were having a hard time with autonomy and therefore, we needed to get the parents out of the picture and help the kids have their own voice about what their feelings were, what their needs were. Over the years, and it's a much longer story, obviously, over the years, it became clear that we were kicking out the people who knew the most about this disorder, which were the parents or the significant others, the spouses, the good friends. And as a result, by this fourth edition, what's really important is we 
absolutely make parents center stage, make significant others center stage, not only in terms of what to say if you're concerned, but what to do to set the best stage for recovery. And so that's a shorthand version of, of many years of, of writing up to the fourth edition. And, and I want to get into the book and, I, and get into some of the specifics of the advice that you give. But I got to ask you, after hearing that story, how did you learn everything that you know? I mean, it, it sounds like you went into this not really knowing how to help. So, so you know, what was the learning process like? That's such a, a good question. I was I was trained at that time in the field of addictions, and so I was working with alcoholism. So I knew to work directly with the behaviors, and I knew that if someone was telling me about their mother, that they were probably thinking about when they were going to drink next. And so I took that information into my training. Very soon after I started training at the after I graduated and got my PhD, I started training at the William Allenson White Institute. And um, although I already had a sensibility about the psychodynamics behind any behavior at White, I really learned to pay attention to what the, what the behaviors themselves might mean, not only in terms of what they meant in terms of expressing one's own feelings or one's own uh, experience of one's past, but what the behaviors meant day to day with me as a therapist. Why did they suddenly stop doing a behavior if they were working with me? Or why would they continue? What did that, what did that mean in terms of the relationship? So in the beginning, we, we really tried everything. What, one of the things that we started, the first thing we did was we had a three-day workshop where we, you only do this when you're in your late 20s and 30s. <laughs> we worked all weekend and we, the first part would be to just uh, explain what eating disorders were, that they were not only issues with food, they had to do with psychological issues and feelings and relationships. Um, and then we worked all day Saturday in a group format um, with people talking about where they were having a hard time and we were and we literally set up a contractual program where they had to decide between Saturday and Sunday or we had follow-up sessions or between one session and the follow-up session one behavior that they would choose if they were throwing up or binging or missing breakfast one thing they'd choose to do instead and uh, that would be in the direction of health and then we would look at what got in the way for them in terms of uh, you know being able to move forward. And uh, in terms of learning, it was so interesting. At first we were trying to do some work with meditation. We found that, that our, our patients were having such a hard time sitting with themselves that at the end of the workshop, we had a meditative five minute exercise. People were rocking, they were opening their eyes, they were coughing, they couldn't sit with their feelings. So we learned very quickly that that was way too early. Um, we, 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 I also learned, you know, some, some of it, we were doing the behavioral workshop and, um, and working on feelings, but I, I sort of learned by a lot of mistakes, even in my individual practice. Like one of my most memorable moments was working with a seriously anorexic kid who was working down in Wall Street. She was in her 20s extremely beautiful and intelligent and hardworking. And I didn't, uh, she was afraid to go to a doctor. 
So I thought, I was in my late 20s at this point, that we would work on why she was afraid to go to a doctor. And six months into it, while we were still working on her issues of why she was afraid to go to a doctor, her parents pulled her out of treatment, as they should have. And guess what? After that, I learned that, you know what? When people came to me for treatment, I would say, you know, in the first week or two, you are going to have to work with me, get with someone who's giving you a medical evaluation so I can get a sense of what's needed health-wise. So we, there were lots of mistakes, um, but we learned, uh, and, and we learned also to learn from the other patients. For example, in the beginning, I remember a patient, and in, in this, of course, was in the days of you know the tabloids thinking this was an amazing thing that girls were binging and throwing up. And I remember there was a British tabloid where one of the girls said that her stomach, that she'd eaten so much that her stomach had exploded, whether this was true or not, this was the front page of the tabloid. And so we had often told in the, in the very beginning, we're telling patients what could happen. You know, you could get dental cavities from all the acid and you could, you know, you could have esophageal problems. And I remember a patient coming in with that tabloid saying, okay, my stomach will explode. Tell me something that's really going to scare me. <laughs> we realized that you know, scaring our patients with what could happen was not going to work. That in fact, we needed to do the opposite, to really talk to them about why they were needing to hold on to these, whatever the symptom was, that it was actually taking care of them. And until they found another way of taking care of themselves, there's nothing we could say that was going to help them let go of it. So what I love about the book is that it really walks you through everything you need to know in order to be helpful to a loved one who you think has an eating disorder. And I want to start at the basics, which is where the yeah. book starts. Um, what exactly is an eating disorder? And for someone who doesn't know and who's new to this, how is that different from someone who diets a lot or just likes to eat a lot or exercises a lot? That is the question of the culture right now, because, you know, I had a 13-year-old come in to me and she said, I'm trying to be a good person. She said, but every place I turn tells me that in order to be a good person, I have to eat in a different way. Give up gluten, give up fats, give up sugar, only be a vegetarian. And she was sobbing, crying. And I think that, th that there's a huge difference between being healthy and eating in a healthful way. And I think that differs for each person. I think what, hap what can define an eating disorder are a number of things. One is if it's interfering with someone's life. So someone's suddenly not going to parties because there could be food or they're getting up late so that they can miss breakfast. Mm. The other, the other obvious um, problem is if there's medical problems associated with weight loss or weight gain or, or throwing up or laxatives, the, the innumerable ways that people can try to get rid of weight. Um, steroids as a way of you know, building up muscle. Uh, I've seen that abused as a way of an eating disorder to get the perfect body. But what's interesting to me, so, so you'll certainly, so if, you, if you're wondering, you'll certainly see signs of behavior in the weight, in food, uh, food being refused, restrictive eating. The thing that you can't see that actually is really the defining feature of an eating disorder is how much someone's thinking about it. 
And when I, ha I have people who are in recovery and they say, okay, you know what? Every once in a while, I still throw up or every once in a while I get scared and I miss a day of eating, but you know what? I'm not thinking about it. Someone who is eating disordered is thinking about it 24 seven. And they'll tell you that when they start to get into recovery or when they talk about it and that the thoughts are as interfering as the food so that someone there's a, um, I'm sure you know, the disorder orthorexia, so that when someone's thinking about food gets in the way of their behaviors. Um, and it also, uh, so in, in with orthorexia, what happens is one's behaviors and one's identity and feelings get defined by whether how, what someone's eating. So if they don't eat what's on their prescribed diet, they feel like they're a bad person. And that goes into the other really important thing about any kind of eating. Someone who's eating healthfully isn't defining their identity around that they are a healthy person. It's one part of their identity. Someone who's eating disordered, that becomes who they are. You know, they're 99 pounds, that means they're a good person. Or they've gotten rid of the food, that means they're okay. Someone's identity starts to morph around what they're eating and how they're eating and what they weigh. But then what do you say to family members or loved ones who may not realize that some of these patterns, be they behavioral or, or, or even psychological, um, are a problem? In other words, you know, what do you do when some of these patterns are culturally congruent or they're consistent. The parents yeah. might say, oh, we're glad that she's trying to lose a little bit of weight. She's going to feel a lot better once uh, she does. That's really been the source of her problem. And they don't, and they don't see the problematic side. Exactly. It, you know, that, that's a really good question. I think that the first thing is, is how do you just pay attention to who a person is? I mean, are you paying attention to their moods? Do you know anything else about how they're doing? I, I'd really want to make that front and center. But it, it's, it's really when you start to see pattern behaviors, I think. So when you see rituals about how someone's eating or anxiety around food foods being um, given, you know, it's really hard because there's a lot of 13-year-old vegetarians out there right now, and that doesn't mean they're eating disordered. Right. But if they start to ask questions about are they fat or if they start to get anxious, if they have to go to a restaurant and they can't find something to eat, if, the fle if, if there's an inflexibility, then at least I would wonder and I would start to at least open up a dialogue. And when I tell families or friends to talk, it, it's really important not, it's really important to be curious, not accusatory. So how do you say, look, this is what I see and we talk about this in one of the chapters of the book. You know, look, you've, you've been eating the same thing every single meal. I'm, you know, I'm wondering what that's like. Let them know how it's affecting you. Um, it may be that the food isn't affecting you, but their moods are. Or that you're just worried. It, it, you know, if you're the parent of a 13-year-old who suddenly is not eating anything except vegetables, it might sort of be healthy, but you have every right to be worried. And then the next question is what you want someone to do. And that's hard. If you have somebody who's clearly in crisis and has significantly lost weight and you're worried about them medically, you, you don't have a choice. You have to make sure that they get into treatment somehow. And we can talk about that because if you're a parent, you're in a very different role than if you're a spouse or a kid even. Um, 
but it may be to say to say to someone, look, if I keep worrying about it, let's keep talking about it. And I, I want to get a sense of how you're doing. But if I keep worrying, can we talk? Can the can you, your my partner, your, your dad, your mom, talk to? Can we all just talk to someone so I get a better idea of what's happening? It's, are it's are a, you suggesting there that the loved one might even become involved in in the treatment? Oh, it, it really depends. Absolutely, um, certainly. If someone is a kid or, or living at home or financially dependent on parents, so it could be a 20-year-old, but who the parents are completely taken care of, I think, it, I think it's completely up to the parents to have that talk. And if they remain worried, that they insist that either there's a physician. The first line of thinking would be to go to a physician. But the other possibility would be that the all that the loved ones and the kid uh, go to see a therapist as well, or someone uh, someone who has an expertise in eating disorders. And to, I've had a few situations where I've literally said to the parents, you know, I don't know that your daughter is eating disordered. I think I think she's, you know, she's rigid, um, but she seems like I like she might be okay. Let's give it a few weeks and see how things go. There have been many other cases, obviously, where I've said, "Look, we need to get a doctor in the in the in the picture. We need to get a nutritionist in, and let's figure out how we go from there." But you're asking a really good question because it's it's tricky. You don't want parents or loved ones to go on a witch hunt, but how do you be curious about another person so in a way that you can open up a dialogue? And if you keep worrying, it may be that you go to somebody else so you can get off that person's back so you can stop worrying. I, I I think a lot of people will appreciate the suggestion to start with curiosity. I, I am wondering, though, how you would would advise loved ones who are worried about let's let's say an adult, someone who's yeah. not under their care in any yeah. sort of obvious way, and they face a dilemma wherein they 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 seem pretty convinced that there's a problem. Yeah. The person in question is not asking for help and they're worried about being intrusive and they don't know how how to engage the person and and how strongly or how softly to, to approach the person in the situation. What do you think? Oh my God, I just had a recent situation with some kids and, and a friend. Um, look, it, it obviously would depend on the age and, and who the person is, but I, I think, say, that, say there's some friends that are worried about another friend. I think the question, or roommates were worried about, you know, another roommate. Uh, the question is whether one person speaks to the person in trouble that whom they think is in trouble, or a group of people do, and that really depends on the situation. But the first, the first thing is that someone has to say something, and because you don't want to look back and feel like, oh my God, that person was really in trouble. I didn't even say anything. So the question is, is there one person that can say something to that, uh, the person they're worried about? And the first thing you say, again, is, is what you see, what's made you worried. Like, look, you're going to the bathroom every time we eat. And, you know, the truth is there's been some vomit on the toilets or, you know, you've lost 20 pounds in the last couple months. And, you know, I know you think you look good. I'm scared because I think you look too thin. Um, 
but you need to stay with your own feelings. Like it's scaring me. Mm. Um, What I see is that you've lost weight. Just stay with the facts, stay with how it's affecting you. And then, and then depending on the situation, you really can say, look, I really would feel better if we could get somebody who's an expert to just evaluate whether you need some support, because I don't want to look back. You could say that to the person. I don't want to look back in a year and feel like you really were in trouble. And I said nothing. Now, what you do at that point really depends. I mean, if it's friends with friends, I just had this situation and the friends decided that they would call this friend's not the mother and father, because the parents wouldn't have really understood. They knew the parents well enough to know that the the parents might've even yelled. Um, And these were kids in their late twenties. But they knew that this this woman had a sister who actually she was close to and who was a little bit older and who actually was in the psychological field. And so they decided that they would tell the, the friend that they they wanted her to reach out to someone um, and that they could do it with her or if not they had to speak to the sister and it became tricky like like what if she said oh I'm going to speak to the sister and then she didn't and so what they did was they um, they they gave it a little bit of time and did some follow-up it turns out she didn't speak to the sister and then they said look we're worried enough that we're going to give her a call um, and luckily, they were in a situation where the, somebody knew the sister, so they could actually ask whether they um, had spoken. And from there, you hope that someone who has a bit more leverage, who's a bit more closer to the situation, who might be able to speak to the parents at that point, to say, look, you know, and explain to the parents why a therapist might be needed or a medical doctor might be needed. It, does that answer the question? Because I know these are tricky situations. Well, I, you know what I'm gathering. Tell me if I'm if if this jives with your experience. What I'm gathering is there there is no one way to do this. Um, that, that it's hard okay. to predict how it will unfold, and I imagine that one has to balance a little bit of firmness with a little bit of gentleness and in curiosity. You can't be too pushy which can't be too lackadaisical either, right? Right. And it really depends on the situation. I mean, we're getting so many kids post-pandemic, I'd like to say it's post-pandemic, but through the pandemic who really got in trouble and that the eating disorder field has, has, unfortunately, kids have been really, really in trouble. And a lot of parents have seen their kids either gain a significant amount of weight and that the problem isn't the weight. The problem is that the kids are dealing with their feelings by eating and the parents don't want to say this is about a diet, by the way, that, that it's really important that the audience knows that hope they know that 90 to 95% of diets don't work and putting a kid on a diet is probably the worst thing you can do because the message is you're ugly, you're a failure, you know, you need you're not okay the way you are. There another way to look at it would be to say, look, you know, you you sound like you're struggling and you know, we notice that you you're not, you know, you tend to go to food when you're feeling, when you're upset. And the kid, by the way, will hit the roof and be furious. But the focus should be on, we, we want to know who you are, what's happening to you, where you're having a rough time. Um, but in, in situations 
like that or situations where kids are losing a lot of weight. We've had a lot of kids restrict during the, the pandemic because that's their only way of control. Um, then the parents actually have to err on the side of being for, more firm. Yeah. And, to, and and again, if particularly if the kids are living at home, it's uh, it's it's up to the caretakers, to the parents, to be able to say, look, I may be totally wrong, but I need a professional to help me know what to do next. Now, yeah. let's talk about a situation in which, fortunately, the person in question has gotten into treatment. Your yeah. book addresses what happens after that, um, yeah. which yeah. is not that the loved ones sort of take a back seat and say, well, okay, that, the professional's handling that now, so we, we can relax. What at that point, once a person is in treatment, is in recovery, what is the role of the family and yeah. friends? And what are some of the most common mistakes that they might okay. make in that process? Body talk. <laughs> That's the first mistake. Okay. There's lots of body talk and, and food talk. But let me let me let me um, delineate different kinds of situations. Sure. Uh, so, for example, if a kid is in treatment for anorexia, uh, as I said in the first editions of the book, we tried to get the parents out. Now we very much want the parents in, and uh, I'm sure I know you know about family-based treatment, where the parent the parents are really the first line of treatment where depending on the age and the, of the kid and the situation, the work really is for the parents to get the support and therapy from a family-based therapist who will help the parents literally feed the kid at each meal. And that may mean two-hour meals where the parents are patiently sitting down and making sure the kids eat what they need to eat. And with younger kids, and in many situations where the anorexia has just started, that's exactly the route to go. Um, unfortunately, a lot of situations are more complex. And so one of the things we really spell out in the fourth edition is what we call the relationship model. Yeah. And we want to keep parents on the front line, but we've had so many situations where logistically the parents really can't sit with the kids every single meal, or the kids are 18. It's very different feeding an 18-year-old than a 12-year-old. Or your spouse or someone who is older. Exactly, exactly. And in those cases, we like to engage a team so that so that we would have, and, and again, the unfortunate part of this is it's often expensive. That's why we always try to get the significant other to do what they can in terms of, uh, certainly with anorexia, in terms of um, health restoration. Um, but in, a, in another, if that is not working, what you want is a medical doctor to be assessing at what weight someone who's anorexic needs to be to be on an outpatient basis. You want a dietitian to be in the picture to help slowly guide the person in terms of what they need to eat because they're going to be terrified. And so a, a good expert in eating disorders who's a dietitian would be able to say, look, we are going to make sure that this is going slowly. Um, and a therapist to look at what happens when the person sits down to eat and says, I'm a fat pig. I can't do this. I worked so hard to be 80 pounds. I'm a failure if I eat this. And the therapist works with those feelings. And everybody works as a team. The parents are in there to know what they need to do to plate the food. They'll be working and, and constantly working directly with, the, with everybody. So the parents should be part of the team. 
in that they know from the nutritionist what should be what the the, the child needs to be fed, um, and that they're responsible for doing that at each meal. Um, they're responsible for um, being in treatment themselves, or at least working with the therapist who's working with the kid to look at issues of communication. Uh, boundaries, we'll go into this, of, of how rules are set in the house, um, what th what they can do, and I'll go into this in a second in terms of how to pave the best way for recovery. But in, a, in, the, in this case with anorexia, their goal isn't to sit there and say, you didn't eat, you have to eat. You know, their goal isn't to sit there with the person who might be 18 or might be at a, uh, the team may have recommended this that the team decides week to week what weight has to be gained. Um, and it's up to the kid to say, okay, you know, she wants to, to uh, however she wants to gain the needed pound a week, it's usually a pound to two pounds at the most a week that we're looking for, that it's up to her or him or them, sorry, to decide what they want to do. Um, and it's the parent's role to uh, just make sure the food is available. And to the, the issues that the lovers or, or spouses or significant others can be working on is what's the relationship itself? Mm. And I would wanna know how are feelings dealt with? For example, in many of the families or couples that I work with, there isn't a language around feelings. There's a lot of language around behaviors like he doesn't kiss me when he comes in the door. Um, but no one's asking, what are you feeling when you come in the door? Or what are they feeling when you greet them? And um, so one of the main things that I want to know is how are feelings dealt with? And that's really important in terms of eating disorders, because in a funny way, we don't teach kids to know how they're feeling right from the start. I mean, even with little, I don't think I did this with my, I have twins who are now in their twenties, but I don't think when they were two, I was saying, is your belly full? How are you feeling? You know, I think at this stage of the game, I would be talking a different language as opposed to, did you eat all your peas kind of thing? Mm -hmm. um, how do we teach people to have an understanding of their internal world and the work with, with significant others and parents is to help people try to understand what someone else might be feeling. How do you communicate feelings? How do they understand what you're feeling? So that can be a big part of the work. Now, in suggesting that the people around, surrounding the, the person in question, think about issues of communication and of emotion, are you, are you kind of suggesting that the eating disorder itself is not just a function of the individual's personal psychology and, and situation, but that it's also a function of the dynamics in which that person uh, lives. In other words, are you, are you saying that sometimes, and I think you address this in the book, family dynamics or relationship dynamics um, need to be taken into account as contributing to the eating disorder? Yeah, this is a really tricky question because the field initially parent blamed a lot. And the message was that parents are causing eating disorders. 
I think the message now is that people have genetic tendencies, physiological proclivities to certain disorders. The culture certainly provides the arena for people to then focus on body, at, like if they're, if they're someone who might be obsessional, they're going to focus on their body given what our culture does. But I wanna make it clear that I also think family dynamics may not cause the eating disorder, they certainly can get in the way of someone allowing for recovery. And so, so for example, I, I think every family is, most families, let's put it this way, are well-intentioned. And so they may set up rules that have worked in their own families. For example, I've had parents who come from really traumatic backgrounds. Parents who've, Their parents have killed themselves. Their parents have been in violence or there's been sexual abuse. And, and there's been, or severe depression. So they come into their families and the message to their kids is, look, we sort of toughen it up. And if things are hard, we move forward. We're the family that pushes forward. We're okay. It's so well-intentioned. It's meant to save the family. But the unintended message is that you better not feel anything or you certainly better not express it. And so if a kid starts to feel something, they might end up turning to food or restriction or bulimia as a way of just trying to let out something. Now, it's possible that the kid would have done that anyway, but certainly in a family, the treatment in a family like that would be to say, hey, what you did from a well-intentioned point of view might be getting in the way and let's see if we can do it any differently. Now, you also said when I first asked you what uh, family and friends, what some of the most common mistakes are, the first thing you said is too much body talk. What did you mean by that? Oh, my God. It's, you know, I don't think people realize how much they talk about bodies, weight and food in this culture. And when I get families who are well-intentioned, trying hard the kids will say, you don't understand. My father came back and said, oh, did you see her? She gained so much weight today. You know, just a friend, a family friend. They People don't realize how much they talk about bodies or how much they talk about food like, oh, I'm so fat or, oh, I feel so full. Um, for, for people to be consciously talking again and again about what their body looks like, what their weight is, what, you know, if food is, is good or bad. Um, I know the health at every size movement is, uh, and and um, Evelyn Triboli and her, oh, I'm forgetting her partner's name, who wrote Intuitive Eating, that they're talking that there's no good food, bad food. There's play food. There's a lot of food that's not going to be healthy for us, but we're allowed to play. We're human beings. And how do we, you know, when the, in terms of talk about talk at the d- dinner table, how do we get away from good food, bad food? And uh, so, but certainly to really notice how bodies are talked about at, you know, at the dinner table even. Now, you and I are both psychoanalysts. So let's, if you don't mind, put yeah. that hat on for a second. Why do yeah. you think it is that we talk about bodies and weight so much? Because you're right. It, it's, it's just part of the, you know, the, 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 the rapport, part of the small talk that we make. Why? That's, a, that's such a good question. No one's ever asked me that question, so I'm thinking on my feet here. But I do think it sort of replaced the religion as determining who's a good or bad person. 
like I don't, I think we are, we're in a culture that's so mixed up about values. Like I think, I think many societies have had really clear uh, uh, um, values, clear things that you could do to consider yourself a good person that change depending on your religion or your culture. And I think we're in a, in a, um, we're certainly in a political society where values have gone out the window, but I think for years, the the that like when I when I was growing up, I mean, people were concerned about the Vietnam War. People were concerned about what was happening um, in terms of whether we were doing something good for our country or bad. I think what shifted is people t- were struggling to find another way to define am I good or bad, and so eating the right way, looking the right way. I think um, I think that's a part of it, plus marketing and, yeah. of course, plus social media. Oh, my God, it's gotten so much worse. Well, which is also part of the religion of the day. Um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, what do you hope the most that readers will take away from this book? Good question. I hope it will, first of all, I hope it will help guide them if they're worried that there is a problem about what to do, what to say. I hope it will give them some ideas of what to do and say if specific problems come up. Like if your daughter says, am I fat? What should you do? What should you say? Um, So I hope that it will actually give people guidelines in the very detailed issues that come up day to day around food and weight, particularly if someone's um, struggling with an eating disorder. I hope it also will help people understand that eating disorders are not just about food and weight, that they are about expressing feelings, they are about someone struggling to figure out how to take care of themselves. And if people can come away from this book and say, wow, I'm going to be a little bit more curious about my daughter or my son or my spouse because I'm so pissed at them because they won't stop doing this behavior. If some, if people can come away a little bit more curious, that, that to me would really be a goal. Well, I want to congratulate you on this fourth edition of the book. It's, it's immensely useful and I, I hope for the same. Um, I want to remind our listeners that I'm speaking to Dr. Judith Brisman, and the book is Surviving an Eating Disorder, Strategies for Family and Friends, now in its fourth edition. Before we go, Judith, uh, do you want to tell us what you're working on now? Um, yeah, first of all, I'm obviously working on getting the book out there. It's it's on Amazon, the fourth edition, take a look at, or, or it's at HarperCollins' website. But right now, I'm... First of all, I'm taking a break because literally I wrote the fourth edition during the the pandemic. Um, But I'm really continuing to just look at at the the combination between what will work, well, actually to look at what will work in this field, because we've been in this field now over 35 years. And the problem is, is, if anything, getting worse, it's certainly not getting better. So I want to keep being curious about what we can do, what we can do with people um, to help. And one of the things I'm paying a lot of attention to is what it means to connect to somebody. Because I think that more than anything, more than any theory, more than any you know psychological direction, um, allows people a sense of safety and hope. 
And so I'm trying to put that into words in terms of my thinking, my writing, my talking, um, particularly in this age where you and I are connecting now online yeah. on our screens. Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate not only the book, but I think the field is better for having someone like you who is constantly thinking, but then also rethinking and revisiting and revising to find out what works now. Um, so thank you. Congratulations. The the book. Good, good. Well, congratulations on the book and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. For, you're a great interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.